Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Brent Palm, and Mike Graham. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, an update with AgriGrowth, Thanksgiving turkey costs and projections, go for women's soccer, but first. We're going into the final week before the 2022 election and the campaigns in Minnesota are tapping whichever political heavyweights they can and throwing all available accusations up against the wall to see if any stick. Eminence Bill Werner joins us with a recap. Tasha, analysts say chances are increasing for Democrats to take a beating on November 8th in Minnesota. National polls indicating an average 1.2% red shift over the past month, with two of the best pollsters in the business putting that at four points. Minnesota DFL Party Chairman Ken Martin says about that. We haven't lost a statewide race here in Minnesota since I've been the chair of this party. Uh, We don't intend to start now. Former President Donald Trump weighed in on Minnesota contests this week, posting on his Truth Social that Republican candidate for Governor Scott Jensen, quote, has my complete and total endorsement. Trump said Jensen is, quote, strong on both fighting crime and delivering solid and sensible education. The results will be quickly seen and there won't be any more fiery takeovers of police precincts. Jensen's response did not specifically mention Trump, instead spotlighting endorsements from the state's largest police association and other groups. Jensen saying, quote, while we have not actively sought the endorsement of political leaders, we are grateful for those who have recognized our ability to lead and heal Minnesota. DFL Party Chairman Ken Martin said, quote, Scott Jensen has embraced the big lie. Donald Trump has rewarded him with an endorsement. It's probably reasonable to conclude that Jensen's reaction to the Trump endorsement was low-key. And why might that be? Hamlin University political analyst David Schultz says even though a Trump endorsement could help rally the Republican base... Clearly what Jensen needs to do, what he's been trying to do for the last few weeks, is to try to move more toward the center and to pick up some of the uh, suburban swing voters. Schultz says Trump's endorsement likely would not help move those voters toward Jensen and suspects that's why Jensen is being low-key on the former president's endorsement. Former Governor Jesse Ventura this week endorsed Democratic Governor Tim Walz, saying on YouTube he doesn't believe in major political parties, but this election is too important. When COVID-19 hit, Tim was there to keep our state safe. That's the governor's most important job. Tim has proved he does what's right for Minnesota, not what is politically easy. Ventura said he can't stand with anyone or any party who cannot condemn the January 6th insurrection. And now, women's rights are under attack across this country. Here in Minnesota, Tim is committed to standing up for the rights of women to access abortion and reproductive health care. Meanwhile, the Washington, D.C.-based Republican Governors Association is bringing Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds to Minnesota on Monday to campaign for... Republicans candidate for Minnesota Governor Scott Jensen, pointing to last weekend's campaign stop by Vice President Kamala Harris. Hamlin University analyst Schultz says Trump would be the obvious person, but because he may be toxic for those swing voters, you have to bring in other people. A new Survey USA poll this week shows Republican Congressman Brad Finstead with a nine-point lead over Democratic challenger Jeff Ettinger, 46-37 in the first congressional district in southern Minnesota. Carleton College analyst Stephen Shears says that could signal a significant shift in a district that used to be competitive for Democrats. An area of greater Minnesota where Governor Tim Waltz traditionally did his best does not look good for Democrats right now, and that could have an impact 
on statewide races. And up for grabs, says Shear, about the U.S. House seat in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District, what is considered a national bellwether this election cycle. Shear says the latest survey USA poll has that race basically tied 46% for Congresswoman Angie Craig, 45% for Republican challenger Tyler Kistner. If this district goes Republican, it will really suggest a red wave nationwide. Shear says it looks like the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Congressional Districts, which encompass Minneapolis, St. Paul, and their near suburbs, will will stay in Democratic hands, while the 6th, St. Cloud, down to the Twin Cities' northwest suburbs, and the 7th in western Minnesota, he says, will remain likely in the Republican column. But what about the always mercurial 8th Congressional District, which takes in a large and what seems to be ever-growing geographic swath from northeast to north-central Minnesota down to the far northern reaches of the Twin Cities metro area? What about the 8th? Democratic State Representative Jen Schultz from Duluth is challenging Republican Congressman Pete Stauber, and Scheer says... I think Pete Stauber is well-positioned to win that race. If he increases his margin, that would indicate that this district's becoming redder. And it is almost hard to believe that so much time has gone by, but 20 years ago, Minnesota and the nation lost Paul Wellstone. They had been cleared for approach. The weather at the time was light snow, and radio contact was lost with the airplane at 10.20 Central Time. man of deep convictions, plain-spoken fella, who did his best for his state and for his country. This day, every working stiff in this state, their children and parents, have lost a true voice, a true friend. Wellstone, his wife Sheila, daughter Marcia, three staffers and two pilots died in that plane crash near Eveleth Airport. NTSB later determined the likely cause was, quote, the flight crew's failure to maintain adequate airspeed, which led to an aerodynamic stall from which they did not recover. Wellstone's death came just 11 days before the 2002 election, and Democrats turned to the only person who could perhaps deliver a win, former Senator and Vice President Walter Mondale. This state is very much in grieving, and yet in an almost cruel way, we must nevertheless proceed with a political campaign. But Mondale would not accept his party's nomination and begin campaigning until after Paul Wellstone was honored. The memorial service, attended by tens of thousands at Williams Arena, was mostly tender memories of a well-loved man. But an unfortunate turn of events may have borne the seeds of the Democrats' downfall in the election one week later. We must keep his legacy alive. We are going to win this election for Paul Wellstone. Republican Norm Coleman won that election by 2.2%. It turned out to be Mondale's final run for public office. Thanks, Bill. We'll be back right after this on Minnesota Matters. Minnesota's electric cooperatives are dedicated to advancing beneficial electrification initiatives such as load control programs and electric vehicle charging incentives. These efforts help homes and businesses run more efficiently while having a lower impact on the environment, creating a win-win-win for consumers, energy providers, and the state's economy. This message is supported by the Minnesota Rural Electric Association, bringing power to the people of rural Minnesota. Year over year, the amount of drug overdose deaths in Minnesota is increasing. The rising number is driven by synthetic opioids like fentanyl and other drugs like methamphetamine and cocaine. If someone is overdosing, call 911. If you or someone you know needs help with substance abuse, talk to a healthcare provider. Learn more about what to do in case of a drug overdose from the Minnesota Academy of PAs at minnesotapa.org. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. Thanksgiving is less than a month away and the USDA is forecasting higher turkey prices. MNN's Brent Palm discusses Turkey Day, the supply of birds, and the impact of avian influenza on the industry with Northfield area producer and secretary treasurer of the National Turkey Federation, John Zimmerman, on this week's Minnesota Matters. Hey, John, thanks for talking with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, before the interview, we talked about uh, the price of everything's going up. At least that's what you hear. It sounds like turkey might be one of the products going up uh, this Thanksgiving season. At least that's what the national reports and USDA are indicating. What do turkey farmers in Minnesota see for this holiday season? You know, obviously, there's all sorts of reasons out there. COVID, supply chain issues, inflation. And yes, turkey is going to be more expensive, expensive this year. And there's probably a few less birds out there. But the fact remains that there's still um, going to be turkeys for Thanksgiving. You may be a little more um, limited in your size choices. And if you're someone who wants a specific brand or a, a specific niche market like organic or free range, you know, I suggest talking to your grocer a little sooner. But in general, the supply is safe. Bird flu did affect us. It, it took out you know, a single digit percentage of the production, but that didn't affect the whole bird market as much as the parts market. So um be a little bit more um, proactive in your search for a turkey, but I'm sure you'll be able to find one and enjoy one. Enjoy one. Well, we got a month to go. Um, the, mm-hmm. the USDA report I mentioned last week that said cost of an eight to sixteen pound turkey um, was a dollar ninety nine a pound compared to a dollar fifteen. Their math said up seventy three percent. We're a month away. Is it a little early to put in quotes yeah. out there already? I, I think so. You know, a lot of um, grocery store chains book their turkeys months in advance, uh, frozen turkeys in advance. So the cash market really doesn't affect that. And then they'll also be doing their seasonal sales, you know, buy all your cranberries and your stuffing and everything else and get a turkey for 99 cents a pound or whatnot. So there's still some good deals to be had out there. And turkey is still a very good value. It's nutritionally speaking, it's one of the best protein values out there. Granted, prices are up, inflation is part of that, fly issues are part of that, but it's still an incredible value. Hey, you mentioned uh, the highly pathogenic uh, avian influenza that hit the state pretty hard in the spring and then we had a few more cases this fall that wouldn't affect this year's birds for the holiday season would it it will slightly as i said uh high path ai mainly affects the male birds which are usually cut up for more of your further processing and so not as many of the whole bird hens were affected some were don't get me wrong but it still was you know less than 10 percent of the market and there again we raise turkeys year-round preparing for thanksgiving so the supply is slightly less than it was a year ago but the supply is still plentiful out there it, it has a small effect but not enough to to warrant going out and not buying a turkey there's still going to be a turkey there if you want to find one yeah and you made a good point about uh that some of the grocery stores are about about giving them away, um, you know, lost mm-hmm. leader, whatever you want to call it. My wife always says, I'm going to buy like two or three and keep them in the freezer and then bust them out in, you know, February or March or whatever. I like your wife's train of thought, and we do the same thing. We'll buy two or three and enjoy them all year long. So there will not be a lack of turkey this Thanksgiving. The problem might come in, in that if you want a specific type of turkey, because, you know, some suppliers had issues, others didn't. So we can move product around, but if you're looking for a very niche market product, I, once again, I just... Go out and check with your grocer early to make sure you can get what you want and order it now um, just to be safe. Yeah, and uh, one of those national reports that it talked about transportation costs, we know fuel has gone up, and that's obviously going to be a little bit of a price hike in everything, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, fuel, our feed costs are up, our, our labor costs are up. Everything's more expensive, and it's not just our industry that's being affected by that. But I think we've weathered the storm pretty well, and, and I'm raising the same number of birds I've always did. I've been very fortunate to not have to deal directly with high-path avian influenza. So we're still placing baby turkeys and still raising turkeys. So, you know, the future looks good. Um, hopefully we can get over this hurdle here and uh, get back to supplying 
turkey year-round. Hey, uh, just for historic perspective, you know, Minnesota's been ranked number one in turkey production for a long time. Do we have estimate numbers on how many farms or how many turkeys we're raising here? I think we're right around uh, 40 million pounds per year. You can double check that. And there's uh, several hundred family farms that raise turkeys. No, those numbers change every once in a while. It's interesting that we raise the most turkeys, but not necessarily the most pounds of turkey some years, because sometimes another state out on, out on the East Coast may actually raise a few more pounds of turkey, but not the same number of turkeys. So we have that claim to fame, but there is that little caveat at the end there that it's actually the, we have more birds, but maybe not more pounds of turkey every year. So. And everybody in every state has heard of Jenny O and Hormel and Cargill, but you mentioned there's hundreds of smaller and family turkey farms. Correct. A lot of them are under contract for the larger companies. I specifically work with a company called Ferndale Market, and we raise antibiotics or raise without antibiotic birds, and there's also some free-range turkeys out there. So we're kind of in a niche market down here in the southeastern part of the state. Hey, last question, uh, John. You're the secretary treasurer of the National Turkey Federation. Uh, Tell us just a little bit about what being part of that group means and your role in it. I was involved in the state association, the Minnesota Turkey Growers Association, and I was elected to the national level as kind of a grower representative from Minnesota. It's a conglomeration of all the state associations and the processors and allied industries, and we work more on national issues. Obviously, high-path avian influence is a big deal for us, but then also um, foreign trade promotions. Uh, Right now, we're looking into promoting turkey smoke, which is to try to... um, emphasize the use of turkey and for um, pit masters and home barbecue enth- enthusiasts or um, smokers. So we, we saw some growth of that with COVID. So we're really pushing the fact that, you know, instead of doing ribs or, uh, you know, brisket, maybe try um, smoking a whole turkey or a turkey breast lobe or something. Try something different. And uh, we've had some good experiences with that. And we're hoping it catches on with the uh, barbecue community. My goal in the very near future is to smoke our first turkey in the Big Green Egg. We'll follow your advice. I I wish you luck, and like I say, buy a second or third one. So if you make a few mistakes, you can always uh, smoke another one. Awesome. Well, hey, John Zimmerman, thanks for uh, joining us today on Minnesota Matters, and I hope you have an awesome holiday season and turkey all week long. Hey, thank you, and happy Thanksgiving, and uh, enjoy enjoy your day. Thanks, Brent. More Minnesota Matters right after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. This week I visited with Tamara Nelson, Executive Director of AgriGrowth. Can you tell us and give us some background about what you do and, and who you represent? Sure. Well, and thank you, Tasha. Uh, Minnesota AgriGrowth was founded back in 1968 as an organization, a membership organization that advocates on behalf of the entire agriculture and food sector. And we have about 150 members. And so as executive director, I work uh, with all of those members to represent their priorities here in Minnesota and federally, and also to advocate and communicate about our great industry. And then we do organize a number of events and um, activities, uh, webinars, educational sessions uh, for our industry and for others. And I know one thing that's been a, a top of mind for a lot of farmers is uh, the upcoming work on the, well, I should say it's already began, on the farm bill. Are you involved with that as well? Yes. Well, you know, happily, from my perspective, not as much as I once was because I actually worked in Washington, D.C. for 11 years and then in Illinois for several where we worked every year diligently on the farm bill. But what I would say from AgriGrowth's perspective is what we do is we of course have members, uh, everyone from individual farmers to companies to our wonderful producer associations here in Minnesota. So we actually um, ask our own members uh, what their priorities are uh, federally and in the farm bill. And then we also watch closely what others 
Minnesota soybeans, corn, uh, pork producers, Farm Bureau, et cetera, what other groups put forward on behalf of their farmer members. And then we try to toss it all up in a salad with uh, what we hear from our lenders, uh, like those in the farm credit system and from uh, anyone in agribusiness that might be impacted by farm programs. And then we carry that forward in our federal priorities in the early in the new year. We've been hearing a lot, and you represent a lot of different entities across the state. I, I'm guessing that inflation and workforce shortages are really impacting uh, the people you represent. Yes, that's absolutely true. You know, um, from whether a farmer or a company or a co-op, everyone is impacted by rising prices. And so that's something that, you know, much of it will resolve itself when the when the pandemic fully ends and when the Russia-Ukraine crisis is averted and when we uh, see adjustments in monetary and investment policies and interest rates. But for now, it's kind of every man or woman or business for him or herself. And everyone's really uh, struggling to try to, um, you know, not incur more costs than they need to, but they're being very careful in their purchases. And so it's a, it's a tough haul, but uh, I think folks are, are going to work through it. Obviously, the fuel costs are, are, affecting, mm -hmm. are affecting your industry as well. Yes, and diesel especially. Fortunately, many of us consumers do not need to buy diesel, but that's something that affects uh, farmers and those in the industries. It's, it's incredibly uh, transportation intensive to move uh, products all the way from the farm to the processor to the grocery store or food service. And so uh, that does affect everyone. And um, it's something that, again, it will resolve itself in the long term. But I think the struggle for most of us in agriculture and food is uh, how do you make those short-term shifts or longer-term investments so that you're well-positioned for the future? And, you know, speaking of the future, your industry really has to look ahead. Um, yes. It's not like week-to-week -week or day-to-day. -day. You're, you're planning well in you know, sometimes into the to the next, uh, whether it be the next growing season or financial year, how how do you adapt and overcome this? A great question. And you know, in addition to the items you've mentioned, you also have a an industry that for several years, if not decades, and now in earnest, is working very diligently to try to bring those aspects that consumers and policies and our environment call upon us to do, whether it's efforts to mitigate uh, climate change or efforts to sequester carbon or attempts uh, and additional continuing work to adjust production methods and transportation methods so that we can do that more sustainably. And even though those things have been affecting farmers and agri-food for years, it's really quite a priority now with some of the changes we're seeing in uh, weather conditions, most notably recently the drought here in Minnesota. And so what you see is a kind of an all hands-on-tech approach um, by farmers in the industry to, to rapidly adapt to those changing priorities right along with their traditional uh, risk management and um, financial management strategies. And I believe earlier this year, you, or not this year, this month rather, I want to correct myself, you held a, a, a food summit. Is that correct? We actually have an um, agriculture and food summit coming up on November 10th here in Minneapolis at no, the Convention that's Center. It. That's yes. It. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And it's kind of one of the biggest premier agriculture and food events in Minnesota every year. It, it happens to fall. Uh, two days after the election, and so we generally have a, a big uh, 
kind of a big picture outlook at the global economy and how that affects agriculture and food. And then we have a number of sessions throughout the day on things, everything from supply chains to uh, new and diverse producers, uh, new and diverse innovative products. Uh, we traditionally have the governor uh, give his state of a state state of the state of agriculture address at the noon hour. And then we always have a post-lunch um, election year outcome. Uh, what happened and what does it mean? And this year we'll be featuring uh, Blois Olson and Randy Russell. So we'll have a state and a federal look at what happened and what does it mean for ag and food and policy. And I apologize, that's coming up November 10th. Yes, we're very excited. It's a great program and the registrations are coming in fast and furious. Thanks again to my guest, Tamara Nelson, Executive Director of AgriGrowth. Minnesota Matters is back right after this. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of 326 hands playing Mozart. This is the sound of 10,942 hands showing appreciation. 64 hands building a house for the homeless. 142 hands swimming a triathlon. 18 hands winning the big game. And this is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called hands-only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. It's incredibly easy and effective. Hands can do incredible things but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. The Gopher women's soccer team qualified for Sunday's opening round of the Big Ten tournament and will play the sixth-ranked Michigan State Spartans. Minnesota has not lost its past five matches and may be hitting stride. Senior defender Gabby Cesaroni was named second-team All-Big Ten this week and has a unique story to tell about her path to Minnesota. Eminent Sports Director Mike Grimm talked to Gabby about that and about facing the Spartans on Sunday in the postseason. They're a good team. They don't give up a lot of goals and they score a lot of goals. So I think what's going to be important is that we're super organized defensively, but also realizing you know, this is a great opportunity for our team to you know, take on one of the best teams in the country. And on any one day, it's anyone's game. So I think we need to go in not viewing ourselves as the underdog and just viewing us as, you know, this is just another game that they're kind of in the way of the the next spot. So I think if we view it that way, um, we'll have a lot more success. Three o'clock Sunday, it's in East Lansing, that game, first round. And then if you uh, get past Michigan State, then it's the tournament itself, I guess we'd call it, with the semifinals the following week. And that's on uh, campus at Ohio State. They're the host institution for the uh, for the semifinals and the championship game. So that'd be fun, certainly, to advance to that. Uh, we mentioned your background, Division Three transfer. You were an All-American, the defender of the year in the entire country last year for a very good uh, Division Three team. I lived in St. Louis for five years before I came to Minnesota, so I'm very familiar with Washington University. It's like the Division Three three version of Stanford. I mean, so first of all, we know you're really smart, right, to, to, to one, get into WashU, but they have really good athletics across the board. What a beautiful campus. What was your experience like at WashU? I mean, yeah, it. I couldn't have asked for a better undergraduate four years for, for myself. Like you said, obviously, the, the academics are next to none. Um, the, the Harvard of the Midwest, yeah. as some people like to call it, so long as they know that you're not talking about, you know, Washington in Washington. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I loved it in that regard. It's really challenging academically. And then, like you said, they have a lot of success across all of their athletics. So that's a really good environment to be in. And, you know, I love the team, love the coaches and it was just a great experience um, for me and made the perfect undergrad. You, uh, a year ago, were Defender of the Year in the entire country. What what was your connection from St. Charles, Illinois, your home uh, area, to get to Wash U? And then how did you eventually get connected to uh, Minnesota and Coach Chastain and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the Big Ten an opportunity here? Yeah, so um, I guess Wash U was kind of an unexpected turn for me. Um, I, it wasn't even on my radar, actually, when I was initially looking for undergrad and then. Um, the coach there had reached out to me and my mom was like, you should really, really go visit um, this story. He likes to talk about it a lot. He's like, I thank your mom every day because <laughs> my mom was always like, you need to go visit. If you visit, you don't like it, fine. Um, but so I, dragging my heels, went to visit and absolutely loved it um, and was like, you know, this is the, the place for me. It had everything I wanted academically. It was still super competitive soccer wise for me. Um, and it just made the the perfect connection. And then Obviously, once everyone got that extra year for COVID, um, I was already planning on doing grad school. So I was like debating whether or not I really wanted to take that extra year of soccer. Um, and for me, I was like, OK, I can use my extra year and stay here at WashU. But I also just at that point for me, I was like, I have had a great experience here, but really excited to kind of get a new challenge and new environment for me. So what ended up happening was I made my list of what schools I wanted to go to for my academic program. And then from there, looked at, okay, can I make this work with soccer? And coincidentally, small connection, my assistant coach at WashU actually played for Aaron at DePaul. Yeah, so yeah. when I initially started looking, Aaron hadn't been named as the head coach yet, but Minnesota was one of my top schools. Um, and so it was this waiting game of, okay, how long do I wait to see if there's a coach versus, you know, exploring some of these other schools on my list? And then Aaron got named and instantly my assistant coach texted me and she was like, you're not going to believe this. Um, I know the the head coach that was named and I know Minnesota is one of your top schools you're looking at. And so it was honestly a, a perfect connection for me to get my foot in the door. Has it been what you thought it would be with your experience? I mean, you're amongst the leading goal scorers on the team as a defender, which is great. And as we mentioned, uh, the team's kind of finding some success here. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you're young, every kid dreams of, you know, playing on a on the big scale like this, where you know, at Minnesota, the the pride in the school and the pride in the athletics is something that is kind of that that aura that you look for. Um, so I think in that regards, that's been super fun and exciting for me to be a part of just because it's slightly different than kind of that environment at WashU. But I really have loved that. I loved the challenge. I knew stepping, you know, up from the D3 to the D1 level, there was going to be um, some adjustments just because the girls are all super, super athletic at the D1 level. Also just the the mentality shift of um you know soccer is really a, a business but also you know your sport that you love and so being able to be a part of that has been just a blast for me um and then as uh, you mentioned the the academic side of it obviously that was important to you you go to wash U, uh and now uh pursuing uh, a postgraduate what what is your academic interest and and uh, where are you headed yeah um so i'm getting my master's in in public health administration and policy and my minor was in biochemistry, so I'm a STEM kid. I really like science, um, and I really like the medical field and health field. So long-term, um, really want to be involved in kind of either consulting in regards to healthcare, health technology and devices. Um, at some point, would really love to start my own company in the field. So I guess that's kind of the, 
the end goal, but a lot of steps to get there. <laughs> Long term, that's awesome. That's a great goal. Short term, the goal is to beat Michigan State on Sunday. Um, it's been fun watching this team come together, and good luck Sunday in the Big Ten Tournament. Thank you. That's for soccer player Gabby Cesaroni with Eminent Sports Director Mike Graham. That's going to do it for this week's Minnesota Matters. Join us next week, same time, same place. From all of us here at Eminent, have a great week.